The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, as you're turning, just to help you find, Philippians is right between Ephesians and Colossians. That's like the back third of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we want to fix that. Uh, if you want a Bible, we have them for free. They're in the back. Uh, there's, a, there's a door right through the, the back door there, and uh, there'll be somebody there. Just ask them. They'll give you one for free because uh, we really treasure God's Word, and we love you, so we want you to have a Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app with you today, we'll have the verses up on the screen. You can follow along that way as we read God's Word or just listen, whichever you prefer. We just want to make sure you have an option, okay? Uh, we are continuing this week in our series. It's called Joy, A Journey Through Philippians, uh, and we've been going verse by verse through this book. This is a pastoral letter. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Philippi, a church that he had planted several years earlier. Um, and uh, last week, we saw how the gospel empowers us to relate to the family of God with real love and authentic affection. This week, we will be challenged and encouraged to rejoice in the Lord, and we'll be given some powerful instruction on what that looks like and how we can do that. Okay, so we're in Philippians 3, cracking into a new chapter. By God's grace, we're going to start in verse 1, okay? Philippians 3, verse 1. Here we go. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Praise God for his word. Who has some good stuff right there. All right. Uh, verse 1. So let's start back there. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul begins this flow of thought with an invitation and command that could really summarize this entire book. Uh, though, for us, rejoicing in the Lord seems easy and self-explanatory to some degree. We need to be sure, and these scriptures bear out this truth, it takes spirit-empowered intentionality to accomplish rejoicing in the Lord. This is not something that happens automatically. We need to know that there are enemies to godly joy, both external and internal. And if we are not careful, we can find ourselves either robbed of joy completely or duped and tricked into a false joy based on deceptions. That's not a word. Deceptions is, though. There you go. Based on deceptions, which 
uh, always leads to disappointment and devastation. When we're duped into a false joy, it always leads to disappointment and devastation. Okay, Paul says this next thing here. It's really interesting. He says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. The heart of a loving shepherd really shows forth in this statement right here. The concern is not for what the people want to hear, but what they need to hear. The context here that he's talking about is writing the same things, but we know Paul feels the same way about preaching because he shares a similar sentiment with Timothy uh, in the book of 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. Let me just read this to you. This is Paul instructing his protege, Timothy, on the subject of preaching. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. You think he's serious about what he's about to say at all? I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living. He's like, he's, he's laying this on. So he's really serious. So to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Wow. Okay. I, I want to speak to you a little. This, this statement right here, what Paul was writing there to Timothy about preaching, what he's saying right here to the Philippians about him writing again the same things, and we're going to see that he's, there's, there's some repetition here. Uh, in, in principles that he's already been dealing with throughout this letter. He's, the, the, the heart of a pastor that really loves and cares for his people is coming through in that. And so I want to I I speak to you a little bit from, from that same place. Just, just my heart for God's people, my love for you, my love for the church. Um, but in it is going to be some, some things that concern me, some, some trends, and, and I just want to put those out there. Uh, you, you may not like it. You probably won't, some of it, but I just, I want you to know I'm, sp I'm speaking out of, out of a heart of love as, as we talk about this, okay? There have been some in recent years who have called into question the validity and fruitfulness of preaching God's word weekly like we do here at Love City. There are people asking the question, is preaching even relevant today? Is that even something worth doing? Is that something worth spending time on? Um, there is an often repeated statistic now, I hear it all the time, tragically, that, that most folks only show up to gather with God's people like this, like we have today, on average twice a month or, or every other week. <clears throat> and many times that, that stat is quoted, and what they're doing is encouraging churches to adjust their expectations and strategies to that new normal. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just concerned about that right off the bat, like that that's what, the way we think about that. Well, people are just they're just not going to gather with God's people weekly anymore. They're not going to do it. They're too busy. So let's, let's adjust this and do this, and let's, let's try to kind of... It doesn't seem like that's what Paul told Timothy to do. As, as people start to care less about the things of God, figure out how to pander to that. Is that, is that what he told him? <laughs> no. He said, preach the word of God in and out of season. And one day, they're, they're going to act like they don't care about it. Keep preaching the word because the word has power. And, and, and in the book of Jeremiah, the word of God is called a hammer. And it'll come and it'll break the stones that we allow to build up into our heart and cause us to be callous towards the things of God and, and think other things are more important. So um, that, there's, there's a bunch of people that like influence church culture and the way churches do things that are, that they'll make that quote about 
essentially how often people are gathering with God's people, and then they'll give you a bunch of ways to work around that. I don't know, what, why don't we call people to repentance for it, maybe? Yeah, all right. I mean, here, <laughs> here, here. some of you might be sitting there, you're going, well, well what are you saying? Are, are, you saying, are you saying that not gathering with God's people weekly is a sin? I'm saying it could be. I'm saying it could be. Uh, motive, obviously, is the driver for that. I think for people in countries where, you know, they and their family could be shot for sneaking into the underground church, if they only make it every other week, like, I, you know, I think they're doing their best. And their desire is to be with God's people. My, my, my main issue isn't, like, actually attendance, right? It's not a calendar thing. It's a heart thing. Like, what matters to us most? Why, how do we think about this? How do we think about what we do when we gather to worship, when we gather for the proclaiming of God's word and the preaching of the gospel? I, I think this, idea, this, 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 this new normal, as it's being presented, that, well, people today in America, they're just, they're just only going to gather with God's people twice a month. That's the best you're going to get. I, I think that is clear evidence that many have decided Gathering like this and having the preaching of God's word with the gospel as the focal point is at the very least not that important. I think that's evidence that that's, that's where the decision we've made. I want to submit to you a biblical counter-narrative with this verse as an anchor point. The fact that Paul said to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Here's what he says. For Paul to write again of the simple and yet beautifully profound joy found in the gospel, he says it was a safeguard for them. I, I want to present to you the idea that preaching often of the simple and yet beautifully profound joy found in the gospel is a safeguard for us. I think a fair question for, for us to ask is, it's fa- I think it's fair to ask this. We should assess what we do. Okay, so is preaching relevant or helpful? Fair question. Is it an effective way of spreading the gospel and obeying the command of our king to make disciples? Is it effective? Is it godly? I, I want to submit to you that preaching is a God-ordained means of building his kingdom and accomplishing his will. Why do, why do we even have to talk about this? Like, there, has, there has been a sentiment that has risen over the past couple decades, a very anti-organized religion, a very, um, like, you know, spirituality is great, but anything that looks like it's organized is bad, right? And so that's, that's where ideas like what we've done, the decision you made today to sacrifice whatever you had to sacrifice to prioritize being here, to gather with God's people, to sing to him in worship, to, to study the word of God, to take communion together, that, that there, there are those that would assume you're, you're brainwashed for doing so. So we have to ask questions, and we need to be able to answer those, those thought patterns, right? So I believe preaching is a God-ordained means of building his kingdom and accomplishing his will. Scripturally, I'll, I'll just throw these out to you. There's many, many more things could be said about it. But think of John the Baptist, right? He was sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. What does the Bible say about him? It says, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4 says that Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. You hearing a thread in that? The Lord Jesus himself spent much of his ministry preaching. I think that's solid evidence for its effectiveness. The book of Acts is filled with examples of the apostles who were trained by Jesus for ministry, preaching by the power of the Spirit 
and God using their gospel proclamation as the means by which thousands came to faith and the church came into existence. I would, put, I would chalk that into the preaching matters category. Like preaching is a faithful, God-ordained means of accomplishing his will on the earth. Um, if you go to Acts and you see the way they preached, much of their preaching centered around recalling the history of God's people, pointing to his redemptive plan woven throughout that history, and calling people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Sounded a lot like how their master preached and John the Baptist preached and the prophets of old preached. These examples, along with Paul's clear command to his protege, Timothy, to preach the word, uh, to do that even when the day comes and people consider it unimportant or refuse to listen, I think give us an ironclad answer to the question of the relevance of preaching. I think the Bible presents preaching God's word as an important part of accomplishing his will on the earth. Amen. Thank you. For, whoever that was, thank you for that one amen. That was you know how to help a guy out. Appreciate that. Uh, guys, I know that this, listen. I, I, I realize, this, this is why I asked for a little bit of liberty, to talk about things that, that are, are on, on my heart and concern me the same way I think Paul was concerned as he said to this church he loved, to write the same things again to you as, as a safeguard. This, this, is, this is why I prefaced it that way, because I know this feels a little bit disconnected from your day today. I realize as you're like, grinding out your week, you're not thinking probably a whole lot about like <laughs> the relevance of preaching in the midst of a postmodern culture and what all of that means and, and like how exactly church should be done today. That's probably, that probably doesn't consume a lot of your thoughts. I guess to some degree, I want to ask you to think about it, to pray about it, but I also want you to be able to talk about these things because there's a bunch of people that believe you waste your time every time you come here. And I want you to be able to talk about from the scriptures why that's not true. And for you to have a little bit of ammunition when you invite people to talk to them about the value of it. Because I know you're inviting people all the time. Some of them are turning you down because they believe preaching doesn't matter. And they believe God won't meet them through that. I won't come listen to some guy talk. Listen, I don't want to come listen to some guy talk either. But if God's ordaining something and working by his spirit through it, I want to be in it. I want to be around that and a part of it. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> now, all of what I'm saying, it's, I don't want you to think, I don't understand. There's much that flies under the banner of preaching God's word that is not empowered by the Spirit, nor centered on the Scriptures, and thus should be ignored and is a waste of time. However, I think we need to judge our attitudes and appetites when it comes to these things. The sad truth is, many, many times those who preach and teach God's word fall prey to a temptation to make sure every week is something new and exciting that no one has ever heard before. Paul says here that it is no trouble for him to write the same things again, and it is a safeguard for the people. What's a safeguard? It's something that keeps you safe from danger. So that, that language makes me like perk up. What, what, hold on, Paul. Writing the same thing again is a safeguard for the people? Why is it a safeguard? What is it protecting us from, Right? Could it be a sinful tendency we all share to want to hear something new instead of actually living out the simple beauty of the gospel? Could it be safeguarding us from that? Just, just nod your head. Just let me know you're here. You don't have to say amen. I know that makes you scared. But just at least nod your head. It could be that, couldn't it? That we have a sinful tendency to want to hear something new all the time. Itching ears, right? Why did James warn us to be doers and not hearers only of God's word? Why did James say that? Because he was running out of stuff to talk about? 
No, probably because we have a tendency for that, to be hearers only and not doers of God's word. Shouldn't all of this together be a clue that informs us of our collective tendency to sin this way? And thus, we need to think about how we push back against that. Part of how Paul believed you push back against it is to write the same things again. He says, no trouble for me, and it's protection for you. This guy loves these people. And so he's less concerned with whether they read this letter and go, oh, I've never heard that before. I just had my socks blown off by the deep revelatory power of Paul's writing. He's very much concerned that they get the basic understanding of the beauty of the gospel and are willing to live it out, that they understand from every possible angle how that infects and influences the way they think and speak and act. He wants them to be totally infused and infected with the beauty of the gospel. I, I want to encourage us, friends, we don't need our ears tickled, and, and we don't need more entertainment. We don't need to be pandered to, and we don't need to find some new way because we've evolved past the need for sound, faithful gospel proclamation and preaching of God's word. We don't need a new, we don't need a new gimmick. Um, there, there are so many today that, w- that will preach what people want to hear. Uh, and this is not just because, I'm not saying this because I'm, I'm angry. I'm not angry, like I'm concerned. It concerns me. I, I read an article this week that was sent out by a, a, it's a ministry, it's a ministry that helps other ministries with organizational things for churches and stuff like that, so they're kind of experts in that field. And here's what the article was. It said, it was some, the, the title was something to the effect of um, why, why ministers sabotage sermons or, or something like that. And, and, and the whole point of the thing was, this guy's talking about this tendency. He talked, he, this one guy he knew was an example he gave of a story, but he said, I know this happens all the time. And I'm sitting there reading it, and, my, and I, can, like, I feel my heart dropping into my stomach as I'm reading this. Because what he's saying is, is like normative, and, and he knew for sure was this one guy's story. Is he, he came, he, I guess he came to where they gather with, with a sermon ready to preach about like purity of heart and, and uh, having the right motives and serving God, and, and he's going to talk some, some about, I think, finances in terms of that, right? So this guy shows up, and this is, he's ready to preach that. Um, and I guess, and, and so he stands up at, at the beginning of the service, and he looks out. Oh, the church is in budget trouble. Forgot that detail. Church is in budget trouble. He stands up, and he notices that there's a couple people there that I guess are, are bigger givers, and so the guy scraps his sermon because he doesn't want to offend the big givers and preaches on God's love instead. I, I don't know if that bothers you to even hear that that's possible, but I, 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 if I had hair, I'd have pulled it out. I was, so, like, I was so agitated inside of me to think that that would happen, that that even could happen. That is, that is tragic and terrible. And here's the, the worst part was not, this article was not a call to repentance for that. This article, the premise of it was, okay, so I know you're under this pressure all the time, so here's what you should do. You should start a for-profit business under the umbrella of your church structure uh, so that you have other revenue streams, so then you won't be tempted to do that. Someone bring me a table to flip, please. (laughs) What are you even talking about? How about just don't prostitute the word of God ever? Ever. 
how about if that big giver, which I, I can help you solve the problem better than starting, starting a daycare in your church. I don't have a problem. If somebody has a daycare in the church and that's part of their ministry, praise God, hallelujah, and if it makes money, wonderful. I have zero problem with that. But I have a real problem with that if you start a daycare because you don't want to rely on the generosity of God's people and you don't want to be tempted to uh, change your sermon on Sunday morning so you don't offend a big giver. Here's an, here's, instead of starting a daycare so you have other revenue stream, here's another way you could solve that problem. First of all, quit looking at the the books so much and knowing who all the big givers are. That would be helpful. Just so you know, if you're somebody that gives a lot of money here, I don't know that. So if, if like you've been offended because you've been other places and you got more attention because you're a big giver, it's not that I don't love you and you, I'm sure you deserve attention, but at the end of the day, I don't know what you give. And part of it's because of that right there. I'm not going to get up here and, and change what God has given me to say because I'm afraid of offending you. And if I was, I should sit down and never do this again. That's where I'm at about it. Well, you're a little too severe. I don't, I don't think so. Not on this one. Some things, yes, I agree with you, but not on this. That, that, is, that, is, that is painfully tragic. The, the solution there is not to pander to the big giver. If the big giver would be offended because you stood up and said that our motives should be pure and that we should be generous because God has been generous with us, or whatever, anything you were going to say, if it was sound biblical doctrine, if they're going to be offended by that, the answer, the way to love them is not to change the message and make it something soft that they're going to be able to nod their head to. It's to call them to repentance. I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if you've never given a dime here. I don't care if you're the one that keeps the lights on. If you're, if you're in sin, and if, if, you're in, if you're in trouble with God in the way you're thinking about something, the way I'm going to love you is not pander to you because I'm afraid about what you will or won't give. The way I'm going to love you is call you to repentance. So that won't happen because I don't know what you give, but just in general, I'm, I'm not going to pander to you because I love you. Paul won't pander to the Philippians because he actually loves them. And anybody that's doing that, that's... That's not, that's not shepherding. What, what if a shepherd just said, oh, look, the sheep like jumping off the cliff and dying? Like that shepherd would not be a shepherd very long. He would be out there shepherding himself in the field with no sheep, which is probably what he should be doing if that's the way he approached it. Praise God. Okay. <clears throat> I want to say this as well. Uh, I'm, I'm almost off verse one. I, I promise it, but it'll pick up here. Uh, <laughs> You're right, buddy. Um, I, I promise that I understand that one of the unintended consequences of technological and societal advancement is an unparalleled amount of options. That's one of the things we didn't know was going to happen, but it has happened. We thought technology would mean we work less, but now we carry work with us and it never stops. We thought economic stability would lead to more time for what really matters, but instead we now run ourselves ragged, trying to never be bored. All of this means our schedules have never been more full. But please, friends, please, let's quit acting like it's okay, or just not a big deal, to treat the normative pattern of a day of rest and worship established from creation by God himself as if it's optional. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? God himself took a day of rest. God himself ordained this pattern. 
Can, can we also quit talking like gathering with God's people for more than an hour a week is overburdensome to our extremely full calendars? When this is true, pulled straight from their own metrics, the average American spends 50 minutes a day on Facebook and Instagram, and that's just those two social media platforms, okay? There are people teaching young pastors and church planners that if their service is more than an hour, no one will come and it will never work. The average American spends 50 minutes a day. That's one, one service a week. The average American spends 50 minutes a day on just Facebook and Instagram. And I not, have not even mentioned yet, in addition to that, the average American spends 33 hours a week or just over four hours a day watching TV. So can we at least call a spade a spade and quit saying, it's, it's my schedule? No, no, it's not. It's a priority issue. Thing, these things are often repeated as like, in the, like, like doctrine for the way churches should go about ministry. They'll say things like, nobody can handle more than a 30-minute sermon because we just don't have the attention span. And, and I'm going to be honest, like I've bought into that before, but part of, God's messing with me too, so you're just getting some of God messing with me, okay? And I'm just, I'm just spilling my guts here, okay? So there you go. Um, but, but we say that. Nobody can handle more than a 30-minute sermon. We don't have the attention span anymore. Here's, guys, here's the truth. Can we, can we be honest? The truth about that is attention span is dictated by appetite, and we will consume what we're hungry for. Is that right or wrong? I mean, is that right? That's right. I am deeply concerned for the church in this country, friends, when we won't bat an eye to pay 30 bucks to go sit in a movie theater for two hours, but we'll complain if a service for the worship of God and the study of his word goes over an hour. What? What? Does that arithmetic add up to you guys? It troubles me. I'm not trying to get on anybody. I'm just telling you, man, my, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm crying out to God about this. Like, Lord, what do we do? How did we get here? I know it's like little foxes that spoil the vine, and it probably happens slowly, but like, now, now we have people training pastors to think this way and to pander to this kind of thinking. Just know you're only going to get them there every other week, so here's, here's some things you can do to adjust around that. Ah. No, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's put a higher emphasis upon Jesus, his gospel, the preaching of his word, and the things that God has called us to, and, and, and maybe we'll stoke their hunger again for things that, that really matter, some eternal things. I don't know. <laughs> it's worth a shot. Um, not, not only will we complain if a service goes over an hour, but we'll pay 30 bucks to go to a movie theater. Uh, there's a ton of people that will walk out of that service without giving a dime of their finances in worship, and they'll feel like they did God a favor just because they showed up. I don't know, guys. I, I don't think that's okay. I just don't feel like it's okay. It bothers me. I'm burdened about it, and I'm in prayer about it. So I, I'm asking you to also be in prayer about it. How do we turn, how do we turn the ship of that kind of thinking? I, I understand that those that have not beheld the beautiful love of God and the magnificence of his glory, I understand them thinking that way. Of course. Of course they do. Of course they think this isn't important. Of course they think, why would I give an hour a week to that? Or why would I give any of my finances to that? I get that. But guys, for those of us who have supposedly tasted and seen that the Lord is good and beheld the magnificence of his glory, have come close to him, have, have had the veil torn away and been able to enter in 
to the Holy of Holies by the grace of God. For, for those of us that have experienced that, the grace has changed our hearts. I don't think that type of thinking is acceptable. Do you? I, I hope not. I, I don't think it is. The point of all of that is that there is, I, I believe there is eternal value in preaching and teaching God's word. I think we should celebrate and rejoice when the gospel is preached uh, because faithful rep- repetition in these things is a safeguard for us. We need to think about it that way. Why did Paul say that? What do we need protected from? Sometimes it's ourselves. Um, sometimes it's ex- it is external value systems and messages that we're getting. Um, I, I believe this reality is going to be made even more vibrant as we go along through these verses. I wasn't just totally out in left field with all that. It, it is going to line up with where we're headed. Okay, so let's go to verses 2 and 3. And get an amen that we're getting off verse 1. If you're happy about something, let, you know, that's okay. I, I understand. <laughs> we're, all right, we're, we're getting, catching momentum. We're moving here. Getting a little steam. Um, verse 2 and 3 says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, I think we might miss the weight of these words without a tad of historical context. It won't take long. But today in general, most people really like dogs, right? Uh, we call them man's best friend. We dress them up. We treat them and often regard them as, as one of the family, as members of our family. Um, Paul, when he was writing this, did not have the, like the pugs and the chocolate labs that we see dressed up on the internet all the time, like little people. That's not what he was thinking about. Not the little cute dogs, not that pug that skateboards. You guys seen that guy? He's a baller. I would like to have that dog. Um, and I, I don't even, I'm not big on pets, but um, what, what he's saying here, this was a very negative reference to the dogs of that day that they roamed the streets in packs. They were dirty and dangerous. Often um, they survived off eating garbage and even the dead bodies of other animals and humans, diseased. It was, it was very derogatory. Um, it was very common for those who were of Israel to refer to Gentiles as dogs in a derogatory way. Um, we even see Jesus in talking with a woman one time. He, he, he knows of that language and it's a very common thing. He speaks of you know, the scraps going to the dogs and whatnot. And so that language, this is, in that day, dogs were not seen the way they're seen today. Um, but, but what Paul does is he hurls this strong language right back at those who would have commonly referred to the Gentiles as dogs or being outside of, like, Abraham's covenant. So when he's talking about false circumcision here, right, I know sometimes, like, what? Talking a lot about circumcision here, Paul. There's a point. The, the false circumcision was a reference to those in that day who were teaching that you had to be circumcised physically to fulfill God's covenant with Abraham before you could be included in the new covenant through Jesus. They said that, that's a part of the deal. If you don't do that, you're not going to be accepted by God through Christ. Paul says, no. What circumcision accomplished through marking the flesh in, in the time of that covenant, faith in Jesus Christ accomplishes through marking the heart. God even told his people that that day would come. He foreshadowed the time that, that the, the, the idea of circumcision was going to change. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Okay, so Paul's saying, he's, he's again railing against the idea of adding anything to the gospel in order to be close to God. So there were, there were those called Judaizers that said, essentially, you need to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Um, Paul says, no, 
Jesus fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. And now it's by faith in Christ alone that we are saved. Uh, At the beginning today, I told you there are external and internal enemies to truly rejoicing in the Lord. It's not as automatic as you might think. Some of you are very aware of that. Um, Other of you maybe haven't thought a whole lot about the phrase rejoice in the Lord. Like, well, how deep does that go? What does that mean? This this example Paul gives of, of people saying, you know, trying to add something to faith in Christ, that's an example of an external enemy to rejoicing in the Lord. Um... So in that day, it was those claiming that physical circumcision was necessary, but however, there are almost countless ways that men seek to lay unneeded burdens on the backs of others. In that day, it was that issue, but it just keeps going. There's always somebody wanting to add something in addition to the the purity of of faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And, And here's what's true. Our ability to rejoice in the Lord is tied directly to whether or not we believe that our relationship with him is based upon grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Our ability to rejoice in the Lord is tied directly to whether or not we believe it is by grace that we are in relationship with God. If that is not intact, we will not be able to obey this command to rejoice in the Lord or, or accept this invitation to rejoice in the Lord. I think it's a command and an invitation. It's like, do this, but it's like, that sounds like a fun thing to do. So that's not a hard one, right? I want to rejoice in the Lord. I don't want to be bummed in the Lord, right? So rejoicing in the Lord sounds better. If we let external voices from well-meaning Christians or Satan the accuser cause us to believe God's love is based on whether or not we meet certain expectations, then we will never be able to have unhindered joy in God. We will never be able to do it. If we let ourselves be convinced God's love is based upon us meeting certain expectations, okay? Um, so that's external. That's the external enemies to rejoicing in the Lord. Any, anybody trying to throw something on you that's putting something additional other than faith in Christ for you to be in close proximity and relationship to God. Verses 4 through 6 show us the internal enemies, okay? Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Okay, so why is that, why is that the internal enemies? Here's what Paul's saying. It sounds like he's boasting. He's not. He's saying, if, if somebody was going to put confidence in the flesh, it could be me. Here's why. First of all, what's he say? Um, circumcised the eighth day, so followed, followed the law to the T of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Why does that matter? Uh, Israel's first king, Saul, what tribe did he come from? Benjamin. So all then throughout the history of Israel, Benjamin had enjoyed this status of elevation among the other tribes. Uh, they were also one of the only ones that um, inside of their territory was Jerusalem. Uh, they also were the first to reconnect with Judah, uh, came back out of exile. And so Benjamin, in the historical context of like the history of the people of God, Benjamin was, if you were from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, even among other people from Israel, you were, there was already kind of an elite status there, right? So he's, he's saying, I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, I'm, I'm of that upper echelon, okay? If he was going to put faith and in, in, in trust in that and, and glory in that, he could. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, okay? So we almost, because of the way we see Jesus deal with Pharisees, like there's almost a negative connotation to that word now. There wasn't in that day. Like he, Pharisees were 
highly respected. They were, they were very versed in the law. Uh, they were more moderate than Sadducees and some of the other groups, and so they were, they were widely accepted as kind of the authority on the religion in the day. They were highly respected, so this was another thing that he kind of, it would have been a feather in his cap. He was a Pharisee, trained under Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis in all of Jewish history, okay? Um, uh, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. That doesn't mean he thought he was perfect, but that means as far as publicly, no one could have brought any accusation against him. He followed the law so rigidly that most people would have seen him and thought he was blameless, okay? So that's, that's what he's saying. If somebody's going to boast in the flesh, it could have been me. But here's what happens. Whether we have external enemies or internal enemies, so how does that work for us? Okay, you're probably not of the tribe of Benjamin. You're probably not a Pharisee. You probably uh, weren't necessarily circumcised on the eighth day, whether or not that matters. Uh, you know, these other things, right? Um, oh, and he was a persecutor of the church. So he, he lists that because not only, was, not only was he a faithful Jew, he was so committed to what they believed that when Jesus came along and, and tried to undo that or spoke against that, he was willing to kill everyone that believed Jesus. So he, he was not only a good guy, he was committed. He was a zealot. Okay? So what does that look like for us today? Well, sometimes it could be, this is going to sound weird because of what I just said just a second ago, but we could say things like, well, I've been raised in church, or um, I give a lot of money, or uh, I spend a lot of time doing ministry stuff, or there's all kinds of things, man, or I'm, I'm generally a good person. I'm really loving. I'll hear people say, I'm spiritual. Um, I'm, I'm really nice to people. These are the kind of things we throw out to have confidence in the flesh. These are things we throw out instead of casting all of our confidence for, for us having connection to God or, or a reason for joy upon his grace, we, we start to list reasons why we're, we're pretty cool and we probably deserve the good things of God, right? These two enemies will cause us to either despair because we know we don't measure up, external enemies, or it'll cause us to go the other way and pridefully rejoice in our performance. Just because you're, just because you're smug and full of joy doesn't mean you're rejoicing in the Lord. You could be rejoicing in you, and, and that castle's going to fall. That foundation's going to break. You guys understand what I'm talking about? Because eventually you're not going to live up even to your own standard. And then your world gets crushed. That's why our confidence has to be in grace. And in God's goodness. We can have external enemies to true joy telling us we are too wretched to be loved. Or we can have internal thoughts and deceptions telling us we are too wretched to be loved. We can have external enemies to true joy that tell us we are good people who deserve God's love, and we can have internal enemies telling us we are good people who deserve God's love. Don't you see, though, friends, if, if, if you believe you're too wretched to be loved by God, or so good you must be loved by God, then you will never rejoice in the Lord. You won't. Either you'll run far away from him because you believe you're too wretched to be loved by him and have no reason to rejoice in him, or you'll rejoice in yourself and your own good works. It is only when we realize that we are more broken than we can admit, but also more loved than we can imagine, that we are free to rejoice in the Savior who makes that possible. Why is what I said above not an external enemy of joy. Because earlier I was talking about the concerns of my heart, how we view um, the importance of gathering with God's people and gospel proclamation. And here's some of you that are, that are perceptive with good memories would be thinking, man, it, it sounded like 10 minutes ago that you were, you were an external enemy to rejoicing in the Lord. 
because you were telling us how important it could be a sin not to do this. And here's, here's, here's why what I said earlier is not an external enemy of joy. Because my appeal earlier that we assess how our appetites dictate what we give our attention was in light of the gospel and not a substitute for it. See, that's the problem. When we call people to repentance, we need to call them to repentance in light of the gospel, not as a substitute for the gospel. Change your behavior so God will accept you. Maybe they don't say it that plainly, but if you don't say explicitly, change your behavior because God loves you. Change your behavior because God's been so good to you. Change your behavior because of the wonder of his majesty and the glory of his name. Not because you need, you need to fix your relationship with him because you can't do that. If you don't say that explicitly to people, they will, they will trend towards the other understanding. Well, God's mad, and God didn't like what I'm doing, so I need to change the behavior to fix the thing. Instead of the motivation being, I, he has loved me so well that I love him. And that makes me want to think about this the way he thinks about it. It, it matters so much. The very fact that we could tend to hear what was said earlier about gathering with God's people, gospel proclamation, the way we spend time, the fact that we could tend to hear that <clears throat> and think, I need to do these things to be accepted by God, reveals the bent of our heart towards a works-based righteousness. We just need to understand this about ourselves. Everything else you experience, this is, this is why the Bible says the gospel is foolishness to the unbelieving. It doesn't make any sense, really. The, the gospel doesn't make sense. You know, like, are you okay saying that? It's offensive and it's counterintuitive because the message is, God sent Christ to live a perfect life. You're imperfect because of your sin. There's a, there's a distance between you and God. Spiritual death was the result of your sin. So God sent Jesus to live a perfect life and never sin and then step in and take your punishment so that then by faith you could receive the good things of God. You could receive relationship with him. You could be redeemed and reconciled. That... That the, our heart is bent away from that always because everything else you do has everything to do with your performance. Grace is an absolute, it, it takes the power of the spirit to believe it because it's such a foreign idea to us. Everything else, you, you, you get what you work for. You get what you deserve. That's not what's happening here. None of what I said earlier were things that we need to do to be justified. They are things we should do because we are justified. A high priority upon gathering with God's people for worship and studying the scriptures will not make God love us. It should be the result of the fact that he has already so lavishly loved us. We already, you already kind of said that a different way. Yeah, yeah I know. Paul said it. It's, it's no burden for him to write the same things to you, and it's actually a safeguard for them. So I'm, I'm okay preaching the same thing to you a different way because it's a safeguard for you because you're bent towards work-based righteousness. You're bent towards trying to do this thing on your own. You're bent towards thinking that you're gonna earn God's favor. You just are. You need to know that about yourself. And it takes the spirit of God and it takes safeguards like the preaching of the gospel over and over and over again, every different possible way to push back against that and to fight back against those enemies, internal and external, always coming to try to steal away from you the beautiful joy of the Lord can't rejoice. If you feel like you can't get near God because you're too wretched, 
or you feel like you're so awesome, you should be sitting on the throne with him. Whoo, that wasn't in the notes. Where'd that one come from? Z-snap. I can't snap very good, so I can't do it as cool. But anyways, we often think the gospel is only for the unbeliever, but uh, as we see here, even a mature and seemingly faithful church like the Philippians needed to hear again these basic and beautiful truths. What's Paul doing here with this whole beware of those that are telling you you need something other than Jesus? Um, you know, if someone was going to boast in the flesh, it would be me. What's, what's he doing here? And, and, and as we go on, he's just preaching the gospel a different way. He's coming at it from a different angle. He's addressing a different issue that would try to be an assault upon the truth and beauty of the gospel. He's preaching the gospel again. That's why he started it by saying, hey, guys, I know I've written about this. Most of the rest of this letter has been about this. Most of the rest of this letter is going to be about this, but I love you. This is a safeguard for you. I'm protecting you from the danger of deception. Um, I, I said earlier that our need for faithful proclamation of the gospel on a regular basis would, would make more sense as we went along. I believe the text here is making its own case for that idea, that faithful gospel proclamation on a regular basis is important. But I also had not one but two conversations this week that reinforced this truth in an experiential way. I, I talked to two people this week. One of them was a 35-year-old uh, woman. One of them was a, a guy in his early 20s. The first, the, the lady messaged me on Facebook because she actually listened to one of the sermons from this series, and she, she messaged me to let me know that she, she was essentially just, just thanking us for the sermon because she's been raised in church her entire life and, and is just now coming to understand, and God used that sermon to, to begin to teach her that she doesn't have to be perfect in order for God to love her. Guys, this is, this is not an abstract one-off thing. I have these tragic conversations all the time. I think God does it on purpose so that I'll stick to this because it can be hard to stick to this, to be the let's talk about the gospel a thousand different ways every week guy because like I have the same temptation other preachers have to go find something you never heard before so that you do more of this. <laughs> Woo! That's exciting because I've never heard that before. That's tempting. I promise. Like, I, I like applause too. I actually don't. Actually, I, I'm, I'm best when you're staring and looking mad. That's what I'm just, that motivates me. I want to, I'm about to move the pulpit over. What's up? Now there's nothing between us. Let's get this on, right? Um, so, so I had that conversation. This, this, this precious woman has been raised in church and has been in church her whole life and is just now beginning to understand the gospel. Second conversation, I got a call at 1030 the other night. I don't, I would, normally I'm out to be honest with you by 1030, I'm getting old, but uh, I looked over and I saw who it was. And I'm like, man, he didn't call me very much. It's a guy I've known for a long time. He's in his early 20s. So I picked it up, and there was, a, there was a quiver in his voice. And he said, hey, Vince, you remember that conversation we had uh, back in November? And, and I did. What, what it was is I had gone over to his house and spent some time with his family, and uh, he told me that he was going to leave the college he had been at, which was far away from home, because he had gone up there and he'd been living a double life. He'd been doing a bunch of he was in sexual sin and sinning with alcohol and all, all, just all different kinds of stuff. He'd been hiding it from his parents. And so the Spirit of God had convicted him, and he'd come home and told the truth and decided he was going to go somewhere local here uh, to have more accountability. But then he told me in that conversation the reason he was doing that. And it, was, it was along the lines of, you know, I, I know that uh, if I'm going to be successful in life, I can't be doing things like that. 
and, and, and I love this guy. And so my heart hurt in that moment. And, and you could ask Natalie about it. I came home and, and talked to her about it too because it really bothered me. And so I, in, in that moment, I said to him, I said, bro, that, that's probably true. But like ultimately, like I'm so glad you had the guts to do what you've done thus far, but I got to talk to you about why you're doing it. Like you're doing the right thing, but if, if you're not doing it because you understand how much God has done for you through Christ and because you love him because he's loved you, uh, the, the motive is jacked there, man. And there's, there's something broken there. You, you doing all these right things because you believe that's going to lead to God giving you favor and blessing in your life. Like, if, if that's the reason, man, that's, that's broken. And, and, and when I had the conversation with him, I could tell by the look in his eyes that it wasn't connecting. And so it, it hurt me because it could tell it just went right over his head. And so I left that. I talked to Natalie about it. And I, I kept praying about it. <clears throat> and, and, and an incredible act of mercy to me, I think, and also to him, of course, uh, he calls me at 1030, and there's a quiver in his voice, and he said, hey, man, you remember that conversation? I said, yeah. He's, he's at another college here locally now, and he's found a group of guys that are doing this Bible study. He's in this Bible study with these guys. He said, hey, I was in this Bible study, man. We were, we were studying this thing, and he said, these guys said to me the exact same thing you said to me, and I didn't get it when you said it, but I, I understand now. And I could tell he's, this guy's almost crying on the phone as he's telling me, like, I, he's like, you know what? I I never understood I'm supposed to love God, like really, like I love my family, like because he loves me, like I should, I should be willing to live for him because of his, his love for me. This guy's ra- raised in church, man, from, from knee high to a grasshopper, and just now getting there. Okay, Here, we need to say this. It is possible that the gospel is being faithfully preached and the disconnect there is in people's hearts and hearing. But to be sure, sometimes it's because the gospel is not faithfully preached. That you can grow up in church your whole life and be where these two people were. This two this week, friends. So even if you're not convinced yet that this matters, I promise you it does. Matter for them. And so I was simultaneously blessed by these conversations because I can see the hand of God at work, and I was broken at the same time. Like, God, what, are, what, is, what is wrong? What are we doing? How are people making it to 35, being in church all that time, and just now understanding that this isn't about you being perfect so that God will love you? What? How am I talking to a young man in his early 20s, 20 years Church attendance. Just now understanding that he should obey God because of love. Either way, whether, whether the problem is that we're not preaching the gospel faithfully sometimes or whether the disconnect is in people's hearts and hearing, either way, these verses and this reality that this happens should cause us to heed Charles Spurgeon's advice. Here's what he said. Don't go where it is all fine music and grand talk and beautiful architecture. Go where the gospel is preached and go often. I'll let Spurgeon have the uh, final word on this. So, So the question is, we've identified in these first verses that there are enemies to rejoicing in the Lord. There are internal enemies, voices from us. There are external enemies, voices from the outside. There are enemies that would would without intentional pushback from us by the power of the Spirit, will we'll chip away at our ability to rejoice in the Lord. So how do we fight against these external and internal enemies? 
verses 7 through 11, in classic Paul fashion, he doesn't just tell us there's a problem. He begins to lay out for us what the solution looks like, okay? Let's look at verses 7 and 8. How do we fight against the enemies that steal away our ability to truly rejoice in the Lord? Verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Remember, he's writing this from a jail cell, staring down the barrel of a death sentence, right? So he's not using um, colorful language here when he says, I've lost everything over this. He has, okay? He's not exaggerating. All right, so what do we learn there? Verses 7 and 8 are telling us part of how we fight against the enemies that would steal away our ability to rejoice in the Lord is that we have to see Jesus as our greatest treasure. Isn't that what he's saying here? He's saying, whatever things were gained to me, all the things I just listed, all the prestige and status, my job, my education, my training, my dreams, I count that all as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things, not just those things, all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable. It's it's oftentimes called the pearl of great price. He simply says there's a pearl merchant, and he finds this one pearl. And it's so amazing. He sells everything he has to get that pearl. He says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what Paul is talking about here. This, when we see Jesus as our greatest treasure, all of those things that would be tempted to add to our the internal enemy of rejoicing in the Lord, which is us to count on our own flesh, to count on our own works. When Jesus is our greatest treasure, those things will be cast away for the great joy of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. They'll be cast away, like, like, like the merchant with the pearl of great price. When we see something as beautiful as the gospel of Christ, all of the rest of the things that we would temp- be tempted to hold on to and rejoice in, those things, those things pass away. It says here, Paul laid down, he laid everything down, and here's what he says. It was the emotional equivalent of throwing away a piece of garbage. Doesn't he say that? Will you, will you put yourself here with me for a second? This is super important for us to understand. He says, For whom, talking about Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Here's what he says. I've lost everything and the emotional toil of losing everything for the sake of Christ. Here's what it was like for me. Throwing something in the garbage. How much emotional trauma are you having when you throw something in the garbage? How much, how gripped are you by the process of tossing that piece of garbage into the trash can? That's what Paul says it was like for him, to be stripped of everything for the sake of Christ. How is that possible? Why is that possible? It's not because his life was bad. Remember? He just told us his life was good. He gave us all the reasons he had, could have confidence in the flesh, didn't he? He had a great life. He was a respected guy. He would have had money and status and power and prestige in his culture. So it wasn't easy for him to throw all that away. Simply, This isn't a beggar in the street saying, look, well, yeah, Jesus has something better. This is a guy that was at the upper echelon. He was the top 
tier in his culture and among his people. And he said to take that reputation, take the dreams and expectations and all that went along with that, to, to let that go for the sake of knowing Christ. It was no more emotional to me than throwing a piece of garbage away. How is that possible? How can he think that way? His life was not bad, it was great. But Christ was that much greater. That's how you can do it. That's how all of your dreams and all of your hopes and all of your status and every single thing you're tempted to put confidence in in your own flesh, that's how taking all that and letting it fall away like a, like a piece of garbage, man. That's what Paul says about it. it. It'll be the emotional equivalent to throwing something away. For it to not be something, this, this tumultuous process for you to... It, what, how, do you how do you do that? You get a glimpse of the Savior. You, you see something of the majesty of the glory of God and his goodness. What it is he offers. That pearl of great price that would cost you to throw everything down to have it. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what relationship with this God is like. That's what fellowship with our Savior is like. It can cause us to take all of those things, those identity markers that we, we make the things that describe us and define us, our dreams and hopes for the future. When we get a glimpse of the master, when we get a glimpse of this God who beckons to us to come and be in relationship with him, all of that stuff, we won't even notice it fell off when we really see the beauty of what's offered us in the gospel. Friends, do you see that? That's what he's saying. And that'll help us rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> that'll help us not rejoice in our own stuff. That'll help us not to run away from him and have no joy at all because we can't trust that what he's saying is true. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So the first way we fight against those internal and external enemies is to see Jesus as our greatest treasure. Why, why do we clutch our stale and moldy bread when Christ beckons us to come and feast on the rarest delicacies? Why do we do that? The only way we struggle to let go is when we have not yet glimpsed the magnificent glory of our Creator King. It's the only way that's a struggle for us. When you see Him, when you, when you experience Him, when you taste and see the goodness of the Lord and the beauty of grace, you will no longer cling to those things that once defined you. You will no longer cling to the past hurts that have, that have become uh, the way you justify distancing yourself from God and his conviction. All of those things will fall away with all of the emotional effect of you tossing away your Snickers wrapper. For a guy that preaches long to mention Snickers isn't real cool, and I get that. It's just the example that came to my mind. So, forgive me. Um, we need to realize that this is not, that, that the reality of this being easy to do in light of Christ's greatness, it's not just for those who are struggling in this life. Like, we tend to think, well, yeah, if you're, if you're poor and beleaguered and struggling and having a really hard time, then what Christ has to offer looks great. Paul was none of those things. He was top shelf. But he said he got a glimpse of Christ, and letting all that go was real easy. That's the point of what he's saying. To really understand the beauty of the gospel. There, 
I, I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how much status you have. I don't care how just big baller status you roll. That should look like garbage to you in comparison to knowing this Christ. Verses 9 and 10. Here's the second way that we battle against internal and external enemies of rejoicing in the Lord. To be found in Him and know Him. What's it say? Uh, And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist, his disciples come to him, and they say, they say hey, John, be, that, guy, that guy you were with, Jesus, he's baptizing people over on the other side of the river, and all the people are going to him instead of coming to you. You want to hear John's response? Here's what he says. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. What was John known for? He was the baptizing guy. He was the camel hair, eating honey and locust guy. Everyone came up out of the cities to hear him preach and be baptized by him. Jesus came on the scene. People started going to Jesus to get baptized. What was was John's reaction? Because his heart was right about it. He must increase. I must decrease. Right before that, he says, I already told you all, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one. He is. And so I rejoice in his promotion. Is that how we think? Should it be? To be found in him and to know him is going to cause us to think that way. To be found in him and to know him is going to allow us to rejoice in him and to rejoice in his increasing in our life, which means we are decreasing. We're not going to be terrified by that process. We're not going to mourn that process. How many of you have mourned, have been so foolish as to mourn the transformation as you've seen Jesus began to strip away the things that used to identify you. And, 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 and you'll sit there and have a funeral over the things God's taking away from you. A little self-attended pity party. Well, I miss how it used to be when I used to be a wretched sinner with no moral compass and just did whatever the heck came to my mind. Well, you fool, would you stop, please? God's given you something better. Let go of that moldy bread, man. Throw that, throw that trash down. Let God put jewels in your hand, man. He wants to. Verse 11 says this. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The last thing I would say, this last way we fight against these enemies of rejoicing in the Lord is we we need to let all of our hope rest in Jesus. We need to let all of our hope rest in Jesus. That's part of how we rejoice in the Lord instead of rejoicing in ourselves or not rejoicing at all uh, because we're terrified or because we feel so wretched that we don't think there's any reason for us to rejoice in the Lord. Let me read you Romans 8, verses 16 through 18. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
Friends, this, this is not a fatalistic scripture that means we should never expect to have any joy or any beauty in this life. But sometimes what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to let your imagination wander to the glory of uninhibited access to God the Father through Christ. And you're going to have to take that and compare that to this light affliction that you're going through right now. And you're going to have to let that future hope in Christ decimate your feelings of hopelessness or that you're jaded or that somehow this isn't fair or that God's not being faithful to his promise because you're in the midst of struggle. And, and Paul understood, going back to verse 10, that part of how we know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, part of how we get to know this Christ who loves us is to join in his sufferings, is to suffer for his name, is to suffer well in this life, is to glory in him and rejoice in him even when things aren't going exactly the way we wish they were. That is part of how we cultivate relationship. We are drawn closer to the God that loves us when we suffer well in faith. How does that work? Well, Romans 5 says that's a process. Every time, every time we do that, character is being built in us. We're being taught perseverance, and, and we are becoming more like Christ. We are, that is part of how we run this race. We suffer well, and that is part of how we relate to and understand the beauty of our Savior. If all of your hope rests in Jesus, it'll be very hard for those internal enemies of self-reliance and, and, and self-degradation and those external enemies that are telling you either you're not good enough or you're so good. If all of your hope is in Jesus, it'll be very hard for any of those voices to steal away from you the beautiful invitation to rejoice in the Lord. That's what we're called to here. That's the whole point. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. May we be a people who are hungry for God's word and celebrate his gospel. May we be a people who are willing to lay down all of who and what we are so our identity can be found in Christ alone. And may we be a people who truly rejoice in the Lord for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful command and invitation to rejoice in you. We thank you, Lord, that we aren't only given that, but we're also given warnings about what's going to make that difficult for us. There, there are enemies that would seek to steal away our ability to rejoice in you and you alone. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that you're, you're on the side of us having joy. You're not a maniacal evil God that just wants us to go through this life in, in, in a big drudgery, but Lord, you, you, you are glorified when your people have joy, when we are able to rejoice in you. Even if circumstances don't seem like they warrant rejoicing at the moment, when we rejoice in you, circumstances can't steal our joy. And so I thank you, God, that you're glorified when we live that way. Lord, please help us to push back against the internal and external enemies of rejoicing in you. Help us to push back against the lies and deceptions that come from us and come from, from voices outside of us, Lord. Please help us, Lord God. Help us, help us to join Paul in saying any, anything that, that I had <laughs> that I used to count as worth something, I count it all as lost. It's, it's, it means no more to me than a piece of trash because I've glimpsed the beauty of the Savior. God, may we be so 
enveloped and enraptured and overcome with the beauty of your grace and your very character, who you are, your holiness. Oh God, may we be so taken aback by you that, that anything we lay down, that there, it, would, it, would not, it wouldn't even have to be a process, God. May we cast it down excitedly because your kingdom and relationship with you is that pearl of great price. There's nothing that compares to you, oh God. There's nothing that even comes close. Lord, forgive us for sinful attitudes that sometimes rise up. Forgive us for times when we, uh, when we, when we prioritize things in a, in a totally opposite way of, of communicating the fact that you're important to us, that your kingdom work is important to us, that, that gathering with your people is important to us. God, for, forgive us when other things come in and end up being little gods that we worship. Lord, they, they're not like you. They're not worthy of our worship. Please forgive us for that. And help us to be a people who rejoice in you and you alone. And I thank you, God, for the beautiful truth that if we're rejoicing in you, our joy can't be stolen because you don't change. Your power is never questioned. Your gospel is never going away. And thus our joy can be rooted in beautiful, solid, unmoving soil. And no matter what storm comes, we won't have to be moved. This is only possible because of you, Lord. We give you all the glory. We worship you. We love you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.